Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. So we've got you know Darren Ridgely here, and um, I want to just maybe... Before we get into kind of questions, could you just describe your kind of background as a writer and an editor a little bit, just so we have like a sense of the kinds of things maybe we might ask you about? Sure. Um, <clears throat> my my background uh, as a writer, professionally speaking, is in journalism. I took a journalism course uh, out of Red River, graduated 2006, and I've been a professional uh, reporter slash editor ever since. So my my start in terms of being a, a writer by trade is in news writing and news editing, which is a completely different animal than uh, doing it with prose fiction. Um, journalism is a grueling industry. It's, it's a lot of work by not many people. And <clears throat> I ended up turning to fiction as a way of uh, holding on to my passion for writing when things got really difficult. So my fiction writing career has only been underway for about eight or nine years. Uh, so it's really, it's been a, um, a very different experience. And so I, I'm learning that there are kind of, kind of big differences in terms of the attitude that you develop, uh, whether it's writing or editing, because there's, a, there's so much more time when it comes to writing fiction versus news. And you can look for more things and uh, have a very different process. But because I've spent so much time in the journalism side of it, my instincts are still very much rooted in that in terms of my editing style, whether it's myself or other people. And then you also, of course, have edited or co-edited this anthology, Parallel Prairies, right. um, Stories of Manitoba, Speculative <coughs> Fiction. Can you talk a bit about that project itself and maybe kind of where it began and how it developed briefly? Uh, it began because Adam Petrash, who I co-edited the book with, and I were looking for a project to work on together. We were both uh, emerging in the, the community of Manitoban genre fiction writers, and we wanted to do something that, that uh, was a part of that community. And we thought, why don't we put together a collection of stories uh, about the province by people who are from here or currently live here or did live here, um, and, and see how many people we can get together. Because we've seen plenty of Canadian-themed anthologies, but nothing that was really specific to here that, that we knew of, at least not recently. So it just turned into this, um, we were constantly putting out feelers. Let's see if people are interested in contributing to this. Let's see if we can get a few people to submit stories to us so we can put together a little sample for, for queries. And, and every step we just kept um, getting through the hurdles people wanted. We found a publisher. The publisher wanted a full manuscript. We were able to succeed in getting a book's worth of stories for a call-out. And, uh, and eventually we wound up with this collection, which we, from, from concept to completion, was about three years. And then can you just, as a last sort of method of introduction, can you just talk a bit about the story in here that you wrote? How typical is that of your own fiction writing? Uh, I... I'd say it is pretty typical. I, I haven't written, I don't have a huge body of work to say here is exactly the kind of thing you can expect from me because I am still very much trying things out 
and, and experimenting a little bit myself. But this is typical of me in the sense that I'm from a rural community. I tend to root things in a rural sensibility, uh, and I tend to focus on uh, ordinary people who are caught up in something that they don't completely understand and are trying to navigate a phenomenon that they don't have all the information on and don't ever really obtain the information on and just have to work with what they've got. One question here is simply, um, I've got this list of questions that people gave me. So uh, what, what drew you to the stories you included? You know, How did you pick those stories in a manner of speaking, I guess? Um, well, we, we had a set of criteria. The, the stories had to be about here. They had, the authors had to have a certain connection to the place. So if you didn't clear those hurdles, you, the story just wasn't going to succeed. Um, for me, I'm always looking for something that, it, that I find evocative, something that's trying to uh, communicate a message to the audience um, and, and go beyond just kind of the, the cool parts of fantasy and science fiction and horror. Uh, we wanted the stories to, as much as possible, uh, mean something beyond just the, the, fashion, the fantasy sci-fi trappings. So that's what I was looking for. And do you have oh, I mean, one kind of general question here? Just also maybe before people, as people kind of maybe think what they might want to ask in general is, um, what advice do you give people when they ask you about writing? Like if you were going to give advice to a beginning writer, what is your best advice for beginning writers? Um, I I think that beginning writers need to try and figure out why are you writing? Why do you want to do this? If you're if you want to write fantasy or, or genre fiction of any, of any sort just because it's cool, that's fine. If you're trying to use it as, as allegory or as a means of communicating uh, a political message of some kind, great. But know where you're coming from. And the age-old advice about writing is if you want to write well, read a lot. But don't limit yourself to just reading whatever it is you want to write. Read a lot of fantasy if you want to write fantasy. But read everything else, too. Read history, read philosophy, read theology, whatever, so that you can have a, a base of knowledge to work from when you write. Because one of the things that I find a lot of writers really suffer from is that they might understand the language of the genre they're working in, but they don't have, a, they don't have great general knowledge bases. They're very limited in the way that they think about things or the way that they can portray things because they're only reading a very narrow spectrum of stuff. So what made you interested in it? Like what, what made you um, want to start writing, you know, in general, but also specifically like writing science fiction fantasy? Like was there a book that kind of turned your head that way or a particular I, thing? I, I mean, I've been into it since I was a kid. I was always into the genre fiction stuff. Um, I mean, everybody is when they're a kid. But it just stuck with me. Um, I liked the idea that, I guess as a kid, I liked the idea that something that seemed really stupid to my parents actually did mean something. <laughs> that there was a message in there that they weren't getting that I was getting. Maybe it was just that they didn't care about it because it was you know, like Godzilla and who cares or whatever. But I got it, and that made me feel like I was perceptive for a 10-year-old. Um, so I, I realized, oh, here's something. You can use all this cool stuff to catch people's attention and then get at something bigger. And uh, you can talk about anything with it. Mm -hmm. 
it's like grunge music. Yeah. <laughs> Parents don't understand it. Sure. But, you know, we get it. Um, I think so. Do you have a question? Um, <clears throat> so you talked a little bit about, um, you know, finding your voice or knowing where that, that, where your writing is coming from. Like, do you have any tips or suggestions on how, like, how to kind of explore that and look at that? Like, I've been writing all of my life, um, but I, I mean, other than the fact that I enjoy it and it's just something that's just part of my life, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. So, is there any way, like, anything you could suggest to? Um, I think that. I mean, do you feel like you know yourself? I, I'm a pretty like self-reflective person. Sure. I guess. Then, then that's all you need to do. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big epiphany, and I think that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking too hard about it. Uh, people who believe that there is some quest to find themselves where they're going to just find some figurative trophy on a pedestal to grab and then that's who they are forever. Uh, you know, the self is a creative act and it never stops. So as long as you're paying attention to who you are and who you're becoming and who you've been, then you're always going to know where you're coming from. It's just, you know, you probably don't notice it because it's obvious to you. The philosopher Thomas Metzinger says that people don't have identities and that we don't have a self. Um, and claims to be able to scientifically prove this. Now, he's interested in cat. He's worth googling. But um, I, I think it does kind of speak to that idea. In the it's like the ex other extreme end of that cultural idea that somehow, you, like the Shakespearean, you must know thyself, which isn't bad advice per se. But it does kind of leave that weird idea that you know people have some sort of stable identity. Sure. P people are desperate to codify themselves. Mm -hmm. They want to have an image. They want, well, these days we talk about people having a brand all the time, which I despise. Um, you have your work, but don't be, you're not a brand, you're a person. And you can't say that, well, this is who I am, and in order for this to be who I am, everything about me needs to reflect that. Every place that I live, every restaurant I eat at, every piece of clothing I wear is a reflection of my identity. Um, I went to high school with, for a town of 3,000 people, were the uh, progressive communists of my peer group. But I dressed like a complete square because I never felt the need to express myself that way. I am who I am. It doesn't matter if I just wear the jeans and polo every day. I used to get a punk show as wearing like shirts like this. Just sure. Because it was the most punk thing you could do. Sure. And, and you know what? The, 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 the young punk, old punk thing is maybe a useful example, right? The old punks all look like normies yeah. because they just don't care about that part of it anymore um, and I think that's a, a healthy place to be is to to know who you are but not feel the need to advertise it all the time the other thing I think is just important to understand is when you're especially if you're just kind of have only been running for a little while is that you don't know what you can do yet sure uh, and you don't even know what you're interested in sometimes you know and, and it's really worth just doing a lot of things like I, I'm a big belief in I think it's important to focus on quantity when you're young and starting to, or even just trying to, you know, older, but just starting with writing. Um, I think like quantity is the number one focus. Yep. Uh, and like quality is important and it comes later. And it's in some degree an outgrowth of quantity. But the other importance of quantity is just like, if you do a bunch of different things, then you'll kind of start to be able to figure out what is more interesting to you. And, and especially if you can, if you can be self-reflective, you can look back at what you've been doing. Like eventually what you kind of start to notice is that whatever you're doing, you're kind of doing a handful of things. Like if you're writing a horror story one week and a science fiction story the next week and a romance 
um, realism the next week. What you'll often find is like the th there's a thread in there. Like as different as they might seem on the surface, they may be all about people, power politics mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, and um, I like to use Margaret Atwood as an example. You know, here's an author who has done a host of different things in her life from poetry, nonfiction, science fiction, although she doesn't call that and so on. But really what Margaret Atwood's stories and poems and everything, uh, fundamentally like what Margaret Atwood writes about is how men and women cannot have relationships in her view. Men and women poison one another. Um, and that's a reductionist way of looking at, you know, somebody who does a lot of things like that. But I think you often see those threads, you know. And um, uh, sometimes you kind of, it helps to kind of like start looking for that stuff in your own work. Sure. But you don't, but if you start start with it, you just get paralyzed. Because you don't, you're trying to know how to like come up with an idea that was going to, you know, express your deep soul and it's like that's fine <laughs> but it's like it's it's better to just think oh I'd like to write about um, words that start with M what can I do with a bunch of words like it's better to have a practical problem that you can kind of process wise move to a solution a lot of the times and you kind of like figure out as you're doing that and maybe what interests you if that makes sense yeah, or that you don't even want to do that it's a stupid idea and like you can move past to like a new thing as someone who's trying to get all of his pathos out into one novel, it's the hardest thing you're going to do. And don't start with that. The novel's <laughs> just, a weird beast. Just, just, write, just write a bunch of stuff. Write all kinds of different stuff. And see what emerges. What is your process? One of the questions uh, people have, a lot of people have is, what is your writing process like? like and I think that also includes like how you figure out what you're going to write about. Right. <clears throat> Um, like when you're coming up with a story, like what's your kind of process I don't, for that? I don't have a, a brainstorming session where I go, okay, uh, let's come up with some story ideas. That never works for me. I'm very much a do mundane things and let it come to you kind of a writer. Now, I can do that because I'm not putting a lot of pressure on myself to produce all the time. I have a day job and I have things going on at home to deal with. So I can rely on that moment uh, and then when you get it you write it down in the, in the journal the idea log whatever you have um, and maybe that's the best way I think that if if you have an idea then it'll come out um, forcing it I think is difficult um, when I do have one I do a lot of my writing at work because I don't have a lot of time at home and I hate writing on a laptop which is what we have um, and I will sit down and knock out a first draft in like 45 minutes uh, because I'm just a very quick writer. I learned to be that way through uh, journalism where it's all deadline-oriented and you have a bunch of stuff to do. Uh, and then I will... I'm trying to pressure myself to self-edit more because, again, the journalism instinct is I always just want to send it off to a friend immediately once I'm finished, and the thing might be complete garbage. Um, and there's a difference between a raw first draft that you have not figured anything out on that you just send to new eyes so that they can say, none of this works... Maybe if I, so if I revisit it a few days later, um, I can fix it up to the point where they might say, okay, now you really have something. And it is important to give it time. Don't just finish it and then start reading it. Because, you, like, the joke is uh, write drunk and edit sober. But the kernel of truth in that is that you have to be two different people between writing and editing. 
don't write the thing and then edit right away because that's the same person editing as who just wrote the thing. Give it a few days and distance yourself from the past you that wrote the thing so that you can hate the past you and give an appropriate critique. Yeah, like one of the things we'll get into a little later uh, today is, um, well, is like techniques to do that. But you got to get that objectivity as much as possible, yeah. which is hard. That's the hardest thing about mm-hmm. self-editing. And self ed you know, you're you're yeah, you're super biased against yourself. You're not or gonna see for a lot yourself. of or for yourself. <laughs> well no, I mean I mean for yeah. yourself. Um, you're not gonna catch a lot of your own mistakes, which is why, you know, it's not a good idea to self edit in, you know, journalism. You always need another person verifying you. Other any other questions people wanna jump in with? A lot of people have questions about um, how many drafts do you do, typically speaking? It depends on the story. I've had stories that I just wrote and mailed off and had accepted. There are stories that I'm on my fourth or fifth draft of. Um, I, I, I can't really explain what the difference is other than sometimes you just have a really firm vision of what the story is out the gate or you don't. Sometimes you have a simple concept that you're building a story around and, you, and that will always take more time and more versions than you just waking up in the morning with the whole narrative in your head. Happens rarely, but it's nice. Um, do you feel like with each draft you do, do you kind of look for specific things in each draft? Um, like, or do you just kind of just go at it? I kind, of just, I kind of just go at it. Um, I guess what I, what I would do, my, in, my instinct is to Fix all the stuff that's going to bug me and distract me from the bigger problems. Do the proof first, honestly, because I'm not going to catch structural problems or thematic problems if I'm noticing every misplaced comma. So fix that stuff and then read it for bigger picture issues. That might seem backward, but I don't want to be distracted by the little stuff. I want to get that out of the way. And then, then the second and third reads are, does the story actually work? How do you define that? Like, does the story actually work? How would you determine that? It's, I know it's an abstract thing. Yeah. But what is the... How do, when, how do you know it's working for you? Did it feel like a chore to read? Does it move nicely? Is it paced well? I try to, I try to pace things very well in my, in my stories. Um, I don't like to, to take up a lot of time. Uh, again, I was trained to write, to write short and succinct and get right to the point of everything. Um... So I, if I find that I'm meandering too much or if I'm repeating myself too much, that's definitely a big issue. How do you... I've had like, teachers in Frost tell me, like, oh, you can never stop editing because it can always be more perfect. And, that's true. Um, but then, so then if that's true, then the question becomes, how do you, like, what is the point where you do send it into to get published? Like, are you feeling angry with it? I'm sick and tired of this and handing it in? Or is it just like, oh, this is good, or like... I, I mean, some, sometimes, uh, how close is the deadline for submissions, right? I mean, that's really it. You work on it as much as you can until you have to send it in or pass up on the opportunity. And after you sent it, that's the important thing. Um, you can work on it as much as you want until your deadline is passed. Once you've sent it in, don't go back to it ever. <laughs> it's done. And once it's published, I don't think I've ever sat down and read anything I've ever had published because I don't. I am going to find things that I would do better. I am going to find things I would do different, and I don't want to torture myself. It's published. It was good enough for the editor who bought it off me. Good enough for me. 
uh, there's a famous quote that gets attributed to different people that uh, art is like a, like writing is never finished; it's only abandoned. And I think there's some truth in that. At the same time, though, it, it does have that. Um, you do get a point, I think, of diminishing returns. Where, like, where I stop for sure is if I feel like I'm just changing things. It's not getting better. Mm-hmm. So maybe it could be better, uh, but I'm not making it better. <clears throat> if that makes sense, you know. And so sometimes you hit, like, if you don't have a deadline you're trying to meet or something, sometimes you just have an abstract kind of arbitrary almost arbitrary like way you're ending like you know I can't do anything else I'm just stuck uh, it's just, it's and then you kind of are deciding at that point is there a way to go further or should I just quit or can somebody else take it further or you know I'm gonna throw in the trash you know mm-hmm. it, there's not a good answer in some respects but but a lot of it is like there's an external force yeah. taking it from you <laughs> My old professor Dennis Cooley tells a story where he was working on the, this book. He was he wrote this book called Bloody Jack years ago that became like his signature book for a while. And at one point, his editor for the press came into his office and said, "That's it, Cooley. I'm taking the book." <laughs> like they like, grabbed it, like hauled it away from him, and started publishing it. Yeah. You did. Um, yeah, I was just gonna ask. Um, do you typically just self-edit and then you send it off, or do you? Is there someone that you kind of always go to that? I have that a. Through it for you. Um, for a while, he's pretty busy now, so I haven't been sending him stuff lately. Uh, but I, Adam and I have been collaborators for as long as we've known each other. We send each other our our drafts, so I usually rely on him. I also was in a novel writing club that was hosted by uh, Chadwick Ginter where I met a bunch of people and they became a writing group to me. It really depends on the story. Um, I am trying to be a little more confident in my own ability to self-edit because uh, I find that you can really get bogged down in the process because you might have three or four people who are willing to read the thing, but they may all all have completely different opinions on what you should be doing and how do you decide who's right and who's wrong. You can only base it on your own opinion uh, of what you want to do. it comes down to how much time I have. If I have a week to turn around a story, I don't want to impose a rush deadline to edit it and get back to me on a friend. I'm just going to do the best I can and send it away because there's no cost to me for that. I don't submit to places that charge reading fees and nobody here should. Um, so the worst they can do is I is say no and then I refine it and go back for the next call out that fits it. Uh, did you have your story written before thinking of the concept or did you write it knowing that this was going to be the anthology that you were going to produce? Kind of happened at the same time. Okay. I was in the middle of writing a whole bunch of stuff. I have a tendency to write work in batches. I'll write four or five stories at the same time and try and polish them as much as I can to be publishable. And then until those are cleared out in, in different magazines or whatever, I don't come back to it. Because I don't want to have 30 short stories in the trunk. Otherwise, I'm just kind of doing it for no reason. I want to make the work as best as I can and move it. So I was writing this one... Uh, when Adam and I were talking about doing this book. But most of my work has been set in Manitoba anyway, so that was kind of my wheelhouse. It's a great question. I think it's actually your question. Um, what's something you see editors doing that makes you angry? <laughs> I can't remember. Was that your question? No, no it's Dick's question. It's all right. But it's a great idea. Great question. What do you, what do you see that editors are doing that makes you angry? Uh, I... 
I hate, I hate, I hate, and I know this is really old advice, and I feel like I'm really going against the prescriptivism and, and the gospel. I hate people who reflexively tell you to uh, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell all the time. I think it's fine to show as much as you can, but if you are writing something that is meant to communicate a bigger idea, you can't do the whole thing through body language and uh, sartorial choices. Sometimes you just need to say some stuff in the narrative. You don't have to do it all the time. You don't have to spell everything out. But there are people who just will not tolerate any telling at all. And I think that whatever hard rule you're given as a writer, um, they all have exceptions. And there are, there are times where you just can't follow the prescriptivism of it and you have to do what you think is right. Um, I personally really like a lot of sci-fi and fantasy that has characters who kind of stand around and pontificate about what they're going to. I love the original Planet of the Apes, a courthouse drama about whether or not, you know, uh, a person is a person. Um, and they just sit there and work it out. And one of the things that I, I get really bored of in fiction is characters who just never take five seconds to actually talk about what's happening to them. You'd think that you would, but you can't just constantly be swept up in a tide of plot where nobody has time to decompress and, and sort out their world. People need time to discuss. They need time to break down, and I want to do that in my work as well. Dan, I'm just reading this book by Dan O'Bannon, who uh, wrote the original Alien script uh, and Total Recall and other things, and he has this great line in there that, you know, you've got to learn these rules, uh, but remember, like, you mass... The, the, you can't be a slave to the rules. You you master the rules, which implies that you are the master, <laughs> right, right. not the rules. Right. You know, and so uh, you know it. It doesn't mean that you're following them uh, necessarily. It's yeah. just you kind of have them in your control. Should they should they be useful to you? And they kind of get your work done for you, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that people get too addicted to books about writing. And blogs about writing, where they just want all of the, the they just want the capital T truth of writing handed down to them, um, and then they can follow that exactly rigidly and be great writers. But at a certain point, you kind of have to figure out for yourself where all the boundaries of this stuff are. There's a couple of questions just about Parallel Prairies, which sure. I think are worth asking. One is just the cover artwork. You've got this great cover, and, and uh, somebody wants to know: Is this Related to the SM Biko story, which it is, correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and you know, so yeah, SM Biko has a great story here called "The Uncanny Road," which uh, if it opens the anthology, does it not? Yeah. And uh, the cover, you know, is this beautiful, you know, set of tentacles <laughs> and this weird spider-type creature on a flaming bus. Um, and another question a lot of people have is like, will you do a sequel to this anthology? We talked about doing a sequel to the anthology we kind of we pitched it very quickly to great plans again to try and capitalize on it um that's up to them ultimately i think that we we both agreed that we would be up for it um but if we were to do a sequel to parallel prairies we would have to expand the scope because you know as much as we were able to get 19 stories here uh we would mostly just be running a lot of the same people again if we did it again in all likelihood, we'd have to go for the entire prairie region of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and open up a pool. Um, otherwise, we just would get a pamphlet if we were in, going to only 
run the people we haven't run before. Not because there aren't a whole lot of people out there, but because you don't get 100% of people submitting to everything all the time. Um, not everybody will send in. So we, we want to open it up. Um, Adam and I have both been busy with different things. We, we put out the pitch. We'll see what happens. And another thing that, uh, you know, I'm kind of wondering this, but also like a couple people I noticed uh, are curious to know if you have a favorite in the story. Is it, is it political to say that whether or not you have a favorite story? Mm, I don't know if, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I have a favorite story, but I will say that a story that I read that kind of, that, that communicated to me why I wanted to, uh, do the project and a story that I thought really fit the project from from a writer who I didn't know about and didn't and therefore didn't expect to see one from was uh, Seven Long Years by Jennifer Colerone. I thought that it, it really wedded the um, the very local angle. It was about something that people talk about in the city all the time, which is the the Red River and the the damage that it does and the lives that it's claimed. It was very fantastical. It was something I hadn't really read. I hadn't really read a story like it before in terms of stuff about Manitoba. And I, I read it and thought, here's somebody who I've never heard of before who wrote this thing that very much encapsulates the whole project for me personally. So I really liked it for that. In terms of favorites, I mean, I, I chose to run them all. I paid everybody for them. I like them all. Can you talk about the nuts and bolts of that? Like in terms of um, getting the... Because a lot of questions people have are about these sort of nuts and bolts of... How do you get an editor to edit a you know, project like this together? Like, are these stories previously published, or are some of them unpublished, and like so on? Like, what are the logistics of you know putting these kind of anthologies together, and what's the process as an editor in terms of going through the stories and so on? So, I'm wondering if you could probably tackle a whole host of questions if you maybe just started with here's like exactly like what the process was like just kind of starting from the start we had this idea then we did this then we did that then you know eventually we end up with these stories now we approach here's the how we approach editing them and so on could you just walk like a little bit through that process sure and people can just jump in with questions about any part of it uh, but uh, you know what's so you had the idea you wanted the speculative fiction um, then what Sure. The idea then. Sure. Uh, uh, I guess to clarify on my last statement, we paid everyone. Adam and I split it. I, not but to take from. But um, like yeah, when? So, like, right, like, right, Can you right. walk through like all that? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so we had this idea. We, the first thing was we needed we needed a sample. We know that usually the way that it works is you query somebody. They say that they want a sample. If you're writing a novel, they want the first you know sixty pages or whatever it is. So we needed material. We had our stories. We got them ready. Uh, and we sent query letters out to publishing houses that we knew would be interested in this kind of a thing. We knew that there was going to be a long wait, so in the meantime we said, okay, how are we going to get a sample together because anthologies are um, kind of volunteer operations. People have to choose to send stuff into you. And we are both people who don't have a ton of capital to work with, so do we want to put out a call for everybody and get the entire book together and foot the bill for it, not knowing if there's even any interest at all? So instead what we did was um, we, asked some, we solicited some writers to submit for 
uh, kind of a sec- under secret project circumstances, I guess, and they did, and we liked their work, so we accepted it. And then we had a sample together without having to get everybody involved all at the same time. And then once Great Plains came back and said, we really like the sample, uh, please send us the full manuscript, then we uh, got the website up, got a call out up, pushed it, pushed it, pushed it, pushed it, pushed it on social, me- social media, and I think we gave it two months for everybody to turn it around and submit. And then once the two months were over, we narrowed down our list of what we wanted to run. We sat down and did a a line edit of all of our selections, curated it, got them all in order, and sent it away. And then more waiting. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. Uh, And after that, I mean, once once the project was accepted, a lot of the stuff was kind of out of our hands. Um, They liked it. They had to go through and edit it. They uh, sent the project to uh, Relish, who did the cover. And then we, our involvement in it came in the form of when they got back to us with our edits, or their edits. And then we had to go back to all of the writers and say, okay, here's what Great Plains wants you to do. Now, we had contracts drafted up with all of our writers that said that we weren't allowed to change a bunch of stuff in their story without them uh, knowing about it. We had the right to change for, you know, spelling and grammar and, and what have you, but structural changes or, or changes to the stories in a substantial way were not something that we could just do on our own. We did not buy the IP. We did not have ownership over the stories themselves, and we didn't want that. We wanted that to remain with the authors. So there, there was a, a process and a no- negotiation with all of the different contributors to point out what Great Plains wanted them to do, and they, you know, very amenable, very professional, everybody got back to us and we worked it out with them and, and made the changes and got it off, and hurry up and wait again. Uh, they, they worked on it very diligently, and then there was a kind of a final crash line edit that went on over the September long weekend where they gave us a PDF and said, okay, here's the final cover, here's the back cover, here's all of the text, can you please go over this and let us know of any... Um, anything you catch so that we can fix it before it goes to the printers. And so that was a big, like, crunch time uh, process. And then the, the book was sent to the printers, and we had the October release. Now, I, I also did an anthology called Why Poetry Sucks, and just to sh- give the other side of sometimes how these anthologies work. So um, the process that I went through is, like, the, I guess you say the other anthology process where... Um, I sold the idea on the, like I sold the idea and the title, and then I signed a contract with the publisher. I had no sample, nothing, um, other than like here's a couple people I would, you know, it'd be nice to have in this anthology in theory. Um, and then uh, I got like basically a number from them of like here's how much I could pay people, here's how many people I could pay, uh, and then I invited, I, I put out a call for submissions on the theme. I looked at all the stuff that came in. I took. Me, me and my co-editor, when I say say I, I mean me and the, co- the co-editor, mm-hmm. uh, we, we took um, some of that material we liked enough to include, um, and then we didn't have enough. So we went also like two people who we um, didn't necessarily know ourselves, but we knew their work, and we invited like them to be in the anthology. And in certain instances, we were also saying like, we know like you have this published piece, can we include it in the anthology? 
so you're, you're just working with unpublished stories, which is more normal. Yeah. Um, we, we were like doing a combination of like stuff that has been sent to a call where we're asking people to submit work to us and that's, that is unpublished. Mm-hmm. And things that have already been published, we're just reprinting it. Uh, and so getting like the reprint rights in that scenario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, and then we had the publisher pay everybody as opposed to paying ourselves, yeah. which is again, a little less, it's just like the other way you would do things. We kind of did it as if the, we were doing it, but it was like as if the publisher was doing it. Right. We, we weren't sure if we would be able to get a publisher on board with doing that. We weren't quite sure how the process worked. We were very new to it. Uh, this is a first project of this type for both of us. So we just decided that we were going to uh, do these things out of pocket on our own. Um, because that way we could at least guarantee that the stories we accepted we could actually pay for if we just accepted that we were going to bite bite the bullet and, and pay that money. And then, you know, our eventual advance just kind of replenished that. Um, all of the stories in the anthology are uh, published for the first time except for one, which is a reprint, which I think is Kate Hartfield. Kate Hartfield's is a reprint. Because I remember... I mean, I'm in that anthology, and I remember, like, Adam just asking me to send him something. I, I forget if it was part of your original thing or not, but, like, to get a sample together. And um, I remember, um, uh, so, like, you know, you obviously were doing some invitation, or at least, you know, he was, like, inviting me to, like, do send something, which I think is just kind of, like, here's the ad, <laughs> like, more than anything. But, like, we were doing, like, a really specific thing, like, we will pay you this to reprint this, and we won't change a word of it, and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was very kind of, um, usually like you're in one of those two positions or in the middle, somewhere between those two. Sure. Yeah, we, sorry. How was the order of the stories decided? You know what, we had our own order, but uh, Great Plains came to us with a suggestion. They noticed that the, the stories were all um, taking place in very specific times of the year, and they had the idea to break it out into, into seasons. So I think the story starts out in the fall and moves into winter and then spring and ends up back in the late summer. Okay. So that was their plan. And we hadn't really thought of it that way. We, we just kind of arranged things in the way that we thought flowed the best for us. But once they pointed it out to us, we liked the idea. So we rolled with it. Cool. What was some, one of the biggest problems you had uh, publishing this or just with writing and publishing your own work? Generally speaking, biggest problems. Just pro- yeah, what are some of the biggest problems you run into in general, and how do you like deal with those? I think that it, I think that the um, deadline pressure is always the worst thing. Uh, with the anthology, that's what it was um, because this is a once you break it out, it's a very big manuscript, and there's a lot of different um, work and a lot of different voices in play. And when we get would get edits back from the publisher, the, there was usually a pretty narrow time frame in which they needed it back. And so there, it felt like there was a lot of um, stress and pressure in getting it all together on time. Uh, so that was really the worst thing. And, and experience kind of helped me through that just because it always feels like deadline pressure in my life. And I've learned that time is actually passing a lot more slowly than you realize. Uh, and, and that's the way that it is with, with my own work, too. I'm usually, I'm getting into the habit of responding to calls in fiction rather than just writing things as it comes to me and hoping that something that fits comes along. Um, I'm trying to see say, okay, this magazine is looking for stories of this vein. What do I, can I work with that? Okay, I have two weeks. Let's get a story together. Um, but then that's putting myself uh, 
that's putting myself in a deadline that I have to meet because if I go to the trouble of doing the thing and it doesn't work out and I run out of time, then I, I feel like I have, uh, you know, one of the worst things that you can do is write a story for a very specific call out that does not get accepted because then where do you go with it? I went here. I, my, <laughs> my, my story in the anthology is, uh, is for the machine of death. Do you remember that anthology? No. Ryan North, uh, who does, does dinosaur comics and did a bunch of weird projects, he did an anthology or he co-edited an anthology called Machine of Death. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, you know, uh, again, it's a very specific idea. There's a machine that tells you exactly how you're going to die. It's based on a piece of paper that says mm-hmm. where, but who knows what exactly that word means. Right. And so I wrote a story for that anthology. It did not get accepted. And I had the hell of a time trying to publish that story. Uh, and partly because um, I kept the machine of death element in, which, you know, it was just a vague idea. Anybody can use this vague ideas. It wasn't like a specific thing they were, you know, you know proprietarily tying this anthology exactly. Right. But um, one of the things I kept getting in feedback when people rejected the story was, we don't understand why there's a machine of, this machine of death. Why can't it just be like a, 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 a person going to get their tarot cards read and the tarot cards tells you what they, they want me to take the science fiction element out and of course the answer to that question is well they have to know it's for real right. and there's a machine that has told them the truth mm-hmm. it can't just be like they believe it is the case or yeah. you know magic is real like it has to be machinically you know whatever like so I kept it in and eventually you know it wound up in this anthology but but that was a very, if this anthology hadn't existed, I don't know if I could have ever really published that story because it was set in Manitoba. It had this weird speculative element, but it only had the one speculative element. Mm-hmm. It was very, like, narrowly. See, and I prefer a subtle speculative element, too. That's mm-hmm. a big thing for me. Uh, going back to things that I hate is um, editors or beta readers that just will not go along with the story. They just will not buy what you're selling at all. And they go, well, how can this possibly exist? And it's a fantasy story. What do you mean, Why? Yeah, well, also, like, the thing I realized in when I was writing that, rewriting that story and getting, you know, sending it and having it come back is that every edit I would do, every time I came back, I would just move the fantasy element closer to the start. <laughs> and so, like, what I found, eventually you hit a certain point where, like, if it's on page one, everybody accepts it and goes along with it. But if it's on page three, like, people are like, whoa, 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 where'd this fantasy element come from? <laughs> like, there's, there's some sort of magical place where, like, People just stop accepting strange shit. And like up till that point, they'll accept anything that you throw at them. But after a certain point, like, okay, we've accepted everything we're going to accept. No more coincidences, no more weirdness. Everything's, that's the setup. So it's kind of like a weird, you know, I, I guess I eventually I hit, I got it early enough that I'm like, interested you guys. You had another question I thought, or? Any other questions about anything at all before we jump into more questions you've got here? Is that one more? Yeah, so whenever you're submitting to magazines or journals, do you um, typically like read, because they're always like, read a lot of what we have before you submit, um, or like make sure you know where, which I feel like it's like pretty, like I, I usually read like a story and then I, I get a feel for it, but. I don't. I'll be honest with you, I don't. Um, It's it's one of these things where you see it all the time. And it's like job ads that will say that you need three to five years experience in the field, and then they constantly hire people who have no experience at all. I mean, they're either going to like your story or they're not. And they decide what fits based on what they accept. So, you know, what what they publish changes all the time. 
because who knows what's going to come in the inbox, and they're not going to re reject a story they really like on the grounds of, well, this is nothing like last issue. So I don't really worry about it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. If it's easily accessible, I'll read it. But I'm not going to spend 10 bucks on their last issue just to find out, oh, they turns out that the horror magazine publishes a lot of horror. It, it's helpful if you know a publication. Like, like if sure. you do read a, you know, a bunch of horror magazines, of course, you know, it helps to get a feel for the differences. And then, you know, if you've got a story, you kind of know where it would go. But it, really, it's just a numbers game of, like, you'll increase your chances of sending it to the right place. Um, but it's certainly not necessary. I mean, it's nice. <laughs> for, for, for me, I find that I'm limited because I'm not very good at writing short. Everything that I write tends to go between four and 7,000 words, and that's a tough market for short fiction and genre. Everybody kind of, you see a ton of one to 3,500. You don't see a lot of 4,000 plus. So for me, it's just about finding a place that'll actually run something as long as I write, and then I just send everything to those places. Do you have a, we're going to kind of like be focusing on editing uh, in this class shortly. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the kind of core focus is turning towards the editing and what the editing process, you know, that, that I teach or that I recommend. But of course, like I said, there's different editing processes, different ways to go out about it. Do you have like particular um, approaches you use in editing, like particular techniques or tricks that you use? Like if you're trying to remove clutter in your writing, for example, is there a thing that you do? Are there other like things that you try to do in editing consistently? Try approaches you take or things you're looking for, um, and that and so on. Honestly, it's 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 very instinctive to me now. I, I mean, I edit full time. I'm always editing copy, and it, it almost becomes one of the dangers that I have as an editor is I is if I'm dealing with a lot of editing at once, I enter kind of a fugue state where I start to, um, for example, if I'm editing a news article. I will have no idea what the story is about after I've read it, but I will have circled every piece of data, every name, every address, every phone number, every, every digit for fact checking. But I don't know what the thing's about because the, my, you know, it's just like driving a car and you tune out and you come back in your home. I've just done it. It's muscle memory. Um, so it, it's really just... I w wish that I could break it down in technical terms, but when I'm reading my own story and self-editing, I just read the thing and go, do I think this is bad now? Do, do I think that this is too clunky? Was I being a little too pretentious here? I can't say, well, I never use this word or well, I, I'll never write a sentence in this way. Um, but it's very kind of pass-fail for me. You know, at a certain point, you know what you like in yourself and what you don't, and you should just listen to that gut reaction a lot of the time. Were you always that way? Or what, how did you build the editing muscle up? Because you do work as an editor. Yeah. You know, that's your job job, right? So, like, how did you get go from you know, not knowing to edit to knowing how to edit? I mean, I took an editing course as part of my journalism program that taught me a very simple step for news editing, which is read it for read it for clarity, then read it for flow, then read it for spelling and grammar, like go to all of the different problem areas and do it one by one. That doesn't end up being very practical in the, in the real world because uh, that's fine if you're an editor at, at a bigger publication where you have one thing to read that day or two things to read that day. It doesn't really work out when you have 20. Um, you can't read 20 things four times. Uh, 
it's a combination of what I learned in the classroom, um, real world world experience, and honestly, getting stung by failure a lot, right? You you don't catch something in editing, and you go to press, and you can't take it back. And sooner and soon enough, there's thirty five thousand newspapers that have this embarrassing mistake in it, and your it was your job to fix it. And if you get smacked with that enough times, eventually you will start learning everything that you could possibly look for. And so there's a, there is kind of a trial and error process in editing where you, you learn by doing and you learn from your mistakes because mistakes are always going to happen in editing. Well, not, not always. I mean, you, you learn to be good at it, but eventually um, things get through and it's just kind of you're constantly having these teaching moments that make you refine the process more and more and more and now I'm 13 years in. And the, I guess another kind of question that people have uh, is, has, do you feel like editing has helped or hindered your creativity as a writer? You mean, you mean being an editor by profession or just the process? I think probably the question is both. Being, do you ever feel you're too focused on critically looking at what you're doing? Versus no, I, I, I'm very focused on the writing process when I'm writing. And, and that's why I say to give yourself time and to not just go from one to the other. Like, let yourself be a writer one day and an editor another day. And don't try to do it all at once because you can't, you know, I, I self-edit in the sense that I, I will constantly fix errors as I write, which is just an old typing class habit. You know, if I misspell a word, I don't leave it there and then fix it on the printed draft. I would constantly go back. But, you know, I, you have time to do one of the steps and time to do another one of the steps. And I try to really create that division for myself because I don't want to get bogged down in whether or not everything I'm doing is working in the moment. I just want to get the whole story out. Any other general questions about, you know, editing or writing in general before we kind of move a little further later into specifically looking at this story? He's a little nervous to look at this specific story, but I really want to get like nuts and bolts of this one story. You got a lot of notes on that story. Yeah, those are all the mistakes. No, just yeah, <laughs> just uh, yeah. This is <laughs> Any other questions about anything? Yeah. Has being an editor like, I guess not ruined reading books for you, but can you turn your mind off editing and just enjoy a book now, or does it like, or are you always stuck in that critical realm of what you read? I mean, I'm, I'm always in a critical realm of any kind of art that I consume. Um, but it doesn't, you know, I don't get hung up on, I don't try to edit the thing while I'm reading it. Of course, I'll catch, I'll catch things that I find wrong with a book, but it doesn't keep me from enjoying it. If anything, um, catching mistakes in books that I read by, you know, respectable authors or people I, I know or anything else is informative because it makes me a little less terrified of those things happening to me because I notice that there's a mistake in the book or I notice that there's a printing error or whatever. But you know what? I liked the book. I put it down and I'm not thinking about the error. I'm thinking about the book. That was a good book. I enjoyed that story. And that leads me to believe that if I publish a novel one day, if there's something wrong with it, people will generally come away liking what they read and not hung up on the little stuff. Is there any little stuff in Parallel Prairies that you've noticed afterwards that you yourself are hung up on? No, I haven't. 
I have. That's not me saying it's perfect. Yeah. Um, but I haven't gone back and read the whole thing from cover to cover again since it came out. To be honest, because I read it ten times yeah. before it came out, and and that is a sanity preserving thing. And where we talk about ceasing to edit a thing after a while, whether it's in my day job or whether it's in the the realm of the the fiction writing. At a certain point, you've read it as many times as you can and still catch things. And it's printed now. It's out. Whatever is in there is in there. And if there's something wrong, I'm sure somebody will tell me. But I don't need to go hunting to make myself miserable with it. Mm -hmm. So that's my take on it. There are techniques you can use if that's, like, the thing you're worried. Like, you can change the font, and then often you'll catch mistakes then. You can do a lot of things. But when the book's printed, you can't do anything. Yeah, you can't do anything about it. It's kind of a loser's game to read your own book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, do you find, is it a different process to edit a short story versus <clears throat> if you were doing a larger, like a novel, like you said, you you want to publish a novel, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Because How are you finding editing that novel? <laughs> <laughs> well, terrible. <laughs> it's it's awful because that you have so much more that you're trying to do in a novel project. You're trying to do, well, I mean, you're, you're trying to do the same basic things, but spread out over a much, a much uh, longer period much bigger word, word count and which, uh, with a much greater level of complexity, which means there's that many more things that can go wrong. And it, there's a ripple effect where if you did one thing wrong in chapter four, nothing makes sense in chapter 15. And, and so I, I was telling Jonathan earlier, I'm on my third draft of this project and I'm, I don't know, four years into writing it. And it just keeps mutating on me. So I'm at the point now where instead of going back and fixing things in the second draft to create the third draft, I've kind of just burned down the whole back third of the novel and I'm writing it over again because between the mistakes that I'm finding in it and the time that it's taken to write it, I'm changing as a writer and now the things that I want to do with the book are completely different, which means I have to write it in a completely different way. Right. When you're writing that first draft, um, like, do you try to get out as much, like, do you try to get from A to B and get it all out before you go back and do any editing? Yeah. So if you're published, if you're wanting to publish something that was like 400 or 500 pages, you would just not do any editing, like try really hard not to go back and edit what you've previously written until it's all done? That would be my take yeah. because you have, to, you have to write the whole story as you see it, you know, while, while you're confident about it. Um, and then go back and see whether or not it works. But you can't really edit it seriously unless you have the whole thing in front of you. Yeah. 